Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Okay, well, good morning, everyone. That's kind of loud, but I think we're okay. Last week, um, this switch was on over here, so we were broadcasting in uh, in Jeremy's class, and I thought, well, he deserves that because he broadcasted. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Well, I think uh, uh, Mike Minute got that fixed, so that's okay. Well, we usually wait a minute or two, but I, I want to get started. We have a lot of good things to look at today, and so thank you for being here. This is our last uh, meeting for the Book of Proverbs for a while, and um, Russ Rice will be teaching the next couple of months uh, from the Book of Jude, so he'll be able to spend a lot of time in those, what, 28 verses or whatever, and, and eight or nine different uh, different lessons. So we look forward to Russ being our teacher for a couple of months uh, there. But I want to do something today. We're going to just do a little bit of kind of finish up from last week on wealth. And then uh, I want to look at something that I would imagine very few of us, if anybody in this room has ever studied the uh, chapter 30 of Proverbs, the, the words of Agar. It is really interesting, and I thought that'd be kind of a fun way to end this uh, this session. But let's uh, let's pray, and then we'll begin. <clears throat> Our Father, we uh, are thankful now to come and to relax uh, with one another, and to look at Your Word and to sit under its authority and Your wisdom through Your Word and. We, again, we thank you for preserving it for us and that we have it in our devices or in our laps today. So we pray now that as we look at your word, we are dependent upon your spirit to, to enliven our hearts to it, uh, that, that it may bear fruit in our lives. And we always pray that we would see our Lord Jesus more clearly because of it. And I pray for each person in the room that you would uh, comfort them or exhort them and all of us about what we need for your word is sufficient for us today and we pray in Jesus name amen okay well just a I don't want to spend but literally just a couple of minutes I'm kind of finishing up from from last time we one of our key uh, passages that we looked at was Proverbs 19:17. whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will uh, repay him his deed and I mean, we just talked about this this verse in a very mysterious way uh, teaches us about God's solidarity and his identity with the poor uh, as Walkie said the Lord's honor is tied up with the poor they are made in his image their just and gracious creator takes it upon himself to assume their indebtedness and to repay their lenders so it's just a wonderful mystery isn't it that if we give to the poor in the right way, then out of God's faithfulness to the poor, He He uh, uh, He uh, He pays their debts for them. I guess you would say, and somehow He restore He returns uh, what is given to the poor to those that gave it to Him. And we are, you know, we talked about God's 
hidden hand of providence. I think uh, Cheyenne, you pointed out, sometimes it's not hidden. We do see it. We, we can't connect the dots, but most of the time I don't think we can. We, we shouldn't look to because we may not be able to see that, but beautiful, wonderful, beautiful truth there. And then uh, Proverbs 11, 24, and 25 is really kind of a summary of what we looked at last uh, <clears throat> last week. And uh, again, we see this mysterious hand uh, guiding God's economy. Uh, one gives freely. I think this is the this is an agricultural model. One scatters, like scattering seed. One scatters seed uh, or scatters widely or gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessings will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. So here again, the, the, ex, the exact opposite happens than you, that you think would happen. You think, you just you know, do the math on this. If you've, got, if you've got $2 and you give one away to a poor person, then um, 2 minus 1 is 1. So you have less. But in God's unusual economy, the Word of God says no. He will restore that and even, even with more. And we've got to be careful because we know some of our uh, um, prosperity gospel people will take this and make it into a manipulative theological concept that you can manipulate God. That's not, that's not what it is at all. And I think uh, we just need to be careful though there's, there's aberrant teaching about this uh, this reality that we don't jettison it but we, we live with it and we enjoy it and we learn to see God's glory uh, manifested in it. Again, uh, just the beautiful unseen hand. You know, notice that um, in Proverbs 11, 24, 25 the name of God is not there. It's kind of like the book of Esther. He's moving all around in the book of Esther but um, and it's obvious to see it but his name is not it's not there. Well, just a a quick conclusion, I just want to look at the first one because uh, it meant so much to me. In uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you may know this is the apostles, the apostle Paul, and his admonition to the church at Corinth to take up an offering for the poor uh, and destitute church in Jerusalem. So he's writing this letter to say, get ready because we're going to come get the offering. We don't want you to be embarrassed. And I just think it's beautiful that his motivation for them to give is the example and the model of the Lord Jesus. In um, 2, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, it's such a beautiful passage, it's very easy to remember because it just flows so good. His motivation is to give to the poor. For So back this up and put yourself in verse uh, in verse. Uh, Proverbs 19:17. Uh, we are the helpless poor. We're the ones in debt. We can't pay our debt. I don't know if, if when you were a kid you sang this little uh, song. Uh, I had a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. Isn't that a sweet story? Uh, I would sing it to you, but I don't know if that would be helpful. But I had a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. But listen to 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. For though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, 
that you through his poverty might become rich. So you just plug all that into this passage in, uh, in Proverbs and I think just uh, to glory in the fact that uh, on a big eternal scale the Lord Jesus paid a debt we couldn't pay. There's no way we could pay the debt for our sin. Uh, and we are the poor, we're the poor in spirit and he paid the debt for us. Okay, anybody else have a, I did all the talking, anybody else have a thought about giving and giving to the poor? All right, then let's, Cheyenne, are you just waiting with your pen or you have something to say? Well, I thought about it last week, but you know, in worldly standards, all of us in America, or most of us in America are rich. Compared to the person who's making 75 cents a day or a month or whatever, we Cheyenne says all of us, comparatively to the world, are, are wealthy. And I, I just say, uh, as I've thought about how my parents taught me about giving, they did that by example, some by teaching, but by example uh, to give. And well, I remember when I was a little boy, I don't know why I remember this, but I got 50 cents a week, which was kind of an allowance or kind of a um, pay for chores and things. And my dad just wanted to get me, he wanted to teach me about finances. So I remember he always gave me a quarter, two dimes and a nickel. And the reason for that was, he said, son, I want to see a nickel on Sunday morning in your offering envelope. And it wasn't, you know, he didn't ask me, you want to do this? It was just expected. And I learned that. And it was, well, I'm, I hope I learned it in a deeper way when I became a believer. But wow, just the power and the strength of uh, a parent to teach, uh, teach children. Okay, well, let's look at this stuff. The words of... I've tried to find different ways to say this. Agur, agur, it's what the Hebrew people say, but we'll just call him uh, agur, agur, uh, Proverbs 30. So we want, to, we want to turn there, of course, Proverbs chapter 30. And the, the scholars uh, say that Proverbs 30 and 31, they're, they're unique from the rest of the book. And they are to be read together as a conclusion to the entire book. Both chapters apparently are from non-Israelite sources, and uh, and they even the, the beginning of each one of the chapters has some commonality to it about them being um, divinely expired, expired, divinely inspired. Uh, <clears throat> but what I think it's a, it's quite an interesting mystery. But I think this shows that that. Uh, the special revelation of God was given to Israel, but now, but this is an example of the, of the revelation of God and wisdom spreading even to outside of Israel. And again, there's a mystery about it, but it's, uh, it's just interesting to think about that. The whole world has natural revelation. That's the, the uh, testimony of the, of the creation, the testimony of our conscience. Um, but we don't know God. We can learn about God. We can learn some of his attributes by looking at the creation. But we only know God by his self-revelation. If God does not reveal himself to us, we will not know God. And he does that by his word and through his spirit. So uh, the outline of, of Proverbs 30 it kind of could be in two parts. 
verses one through nine, I guess we would call it autobiographical. This is Augur talking and speaking about himself and about his about his pathway and and uh, coming to know the Lord and to know wisdom. And then in verses ten through thirty-three, uh, we won't get there. Any, we won't get anywhere near verse ten today, but. Wow, these are all these strange numerical uh, sayings. And um, they're just fun to read, and I'm not sure it take a lot of study to understand what all they're saying. But uh, they, again, they are looking at the natural revelation and, and drawing wisdom from them. But now let's look at, uh, at uh, Proverbs 30. Verse 1, we have this bit of an introduction and a title, the words of Agur, the the son of uh, Jacob, the oracle. And um, again, we, we believe he's a non-Israelite. We don't know who this, who this man is. We don't know who Jacob is either. Uh, same thing about Lemuel in chapter 31. And interestingly, um, this is apparently like Job and his friends. They, those men were apparently not Israelites. But... Um, I think most scholars believe that the book of Job is written very early. They can look at some of the wording there, and we'll see this in a moment, that the book of Job was very early, written very early. Um, and yet Job, at least through all that, well, he, well, God's testimony about him was that he was a you know, righteous man. So he was a non-Israelite believer. And uh, I tell you, just doing this study and seeing the commonalities in in. Proverbs 30 in the book of Job, it really whets my appetite to get to Job. We, we won't get there for a while, but or if you want to you know, come back in uh, August, we'll probably still mine some treasures out of Proverbs, but and then we'll probably do Ecclesiastes, and then we'll get to, uh, to Job, but Job is another really interesting, uh, interesting portion of, of God's wisdom. So, um, uh, so Agur, a non-Israelite, this word oracle, it means an, an inspired heavenly revelation. So the, the canon, the Old Testament canon, wasn't really put together until, I don't know, 165 B.C., something like that. I don't know for sure. So this is obviously several hundred years uh, before, the, before the Old Testament canon was put together. Some of it was beginning to be, uh, to be collected, the... Uh, you know the books of Moses and things like that, <clears throat> but but Agur is claiming divine inspiration. So this is an oracle. An oracle is a is a communication. I mean, some the, the pagan religions use that too. But we're going to see that. I mean, they would say an oracle would would be a divine communication from their god. But we know here that when Agur speaks, he's speaking of the one the one true God. Um, so how this got into the book of Proverbs, we looked weeks ago at the men of Hezekiah, apparently were the compilers, so maybe these, these two um, words of the wise were separate documents and they brought them together and, and recognized them that they, were, uh, that they were divine inspiration. Okay, so now then, and, uh, so that's kind of the, the little heading there, and now he begins his... his uh, his autobiography, and from what I can read um, from these, I gave you the, the three sources that I that I went to to try to understand this. 
that what he is doing, what Agar is doing, is he is telling us the, the story of his um, seeking and understanding and gaining wisdom. And we'll see how he does that. But um, what we see here is that he began with just a natural revelation. And he was, uh, it, was a, it was a wearisome process to just look at the creation and see God's glory but not know the, not know the God of the creation. So that's kind of where he's going with this story. So, um, second part of verse 1, the man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. By the way, uh, Waltke says this is the only prayer. This is a prayer. Notice this is a prayer. He's praying to God. He's going to do that more in verses 7 through 9. But this is the only prayer in the book of Proverbs. I hadn't checked that out, but I trust Dr. Walkie, but that's an interesting thought, isn't it? The only prayer in the book of Proverbs. So, um, so Augur says, uh, he says, I am weary, O God, and worn out. And so he's, I think he's just expressing this, uh, this spiritual weariness of seeking to know God and, and yet not finding Him. They, you know, as uh, Solomon said, God has put eternity in our hearts. So when our hearts are thinking the right way, we have a we have a that vacuum there to know the Lord. But um, Augur has not yet in this pro, in, in this part of the telling of his story, he's not yet found uh, true wisdom. So in uh, let's see if I don't want to miss anything. We're going to look at Job 28. I think we'll have time in, in a few minutes. Um, but notice what he says, this self-abasement in verse 2. Surely I am uh, too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. Uh, somebody called this uh, oh, some kind of uh, anthropology, kind of a demo... A, 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 a humble anthropology and his point is that um, I don't even have what ought to be the normal understanding of a man a man should know his God but I don't have that when he says I'm too stupid to be a man it really is the idea of uh, I'm like an animal I'm, he uses the word other places called brutish he said I'm brutish he says I'm, I'm just not what I need to be and I'm, and I'm unhappy and I'm frustrated about that, um, let's. We're going to do some some things in Job. Let's go uh, on the way to Job. Stop by Psalm seventy-three. You know, you're going backwards now toward the front of the Bible. So go to Psalm seventy-three. We just stop by there on the way back to Job. Now, sometimes it seems that. Uh, that Augur quotes um, other passages like we're going to see uh, it seems like he even quotes some of the Psalms but in Psalm 73 I just want you to see this uh, this similar statement here Psalm 73 verse 22 or verse 21 when my, when my soul was embittered when I was pricked in my heart I was brutish and ignorant I was like a beast toward you 
that seems to be a bit of a parallel a parallel of what we see and what Augur says. Now, head on back to Job, and let's look at Job uh, 40. Now, notice where Job 40 is. It's at the end of the book. So, Job's had all this experience, the, the uh, criticism of his so-called friends, and now God has begun to speak to him. Uh, God's speaking to him through the creation, and uh, that's what we're going to see Agur receives too. But uh, after, after a couple of chapters of that, of, uh, of God you know, asking him questions about the creation, then Job says in Job 40, um, verse 3, Then Job answered the Lord and said, and this is after he's just been overwhelmed by the, by the creation, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. So uh, God has shut Job's mouth. He said, I'm through arguing with you and you know, trying to win my case. And it seems that, that's, that that is the way Agar is. So let's go back to chapter 30. And it, it seems that this admission of his ignorance is really an expression of his humanity. I mean, of his humility. Um, we won't look at it, but if you remember back in chapter 3, 5, of be not wise in your own eyes. Uh, do not lean on your own understanding. And I think this is a really good place for Agur to be. He's saying... I, don't have, I do not have understanding. I am not able to get to God. I cannot know God uh, on my own, by myself. And he's, 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 we're going to see this in a few minutes, but he's beginning to realize that only if God reveals himself uh, will he know God. And you, know, you can just use your imagination. Well, maybe he heard that the nation of Israel had a revelation of God. And maybe... He was like the wise man or something. I don't. Who knows how this all put together? But somehow he gets to the word of God, to the written word of God. The, that he realizes that the general revelation, the natural revelation, is wonderful, and it proclaims the glory of God. But in it, but there must be the the special revelation of God's word, where He speaks to prophets and seers and others, and they write it. They write it down. So. Um, so look at verse 3. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. I think this is Hebrew parallelism. Remember what Hebrew, there's different kinds of Hebrew parallelism. But one kind is, uh, there's two, two parts to these verses in the first part, and they say the same thing. They say it in different ways, but in this, sometimes they use contrast. But in this verse, I think this is um, uh, this is the the uh, um, uh, the development. The, the second phrase, the second phrase, is the development of the first phrase, and they mean the same thing. So look at what what he may be saying there. I have not learned wisdom, which means I don't have the knowledge of the Holy One. Now, we've learned, we've seen that a lot in the book of Proverbs, particularly in the beginning, because what is the beginning of wisdom? 
the, the the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so what we've seen in the book of Proverbs is that wisdom is not just intellectual uh, gathering of information. Uh, wisdom must begin with the relationship uh, with God, with the, with the uh, with the source of wisdom. So, um, so now he's. This is where he is uh, with his with his uh, natural revelation. I haven't yet learned wisdom because I don't know uh, the Holy One. Okay, now let's look at verse four. <clears throat> A very interesting verse. And notice it has these uh, these four who questions. And then it has uh, two what questions at the end of the verse. And when you read this, it's it, it's going to re- if you've done much reading in the in Job, it's going to remind you of the Book of Job. Because remember, God just staccato uh, machine gun just kept asking Job, "Where were you? Who are you?" You know, and just overwhelming Job. When he spends three or four chapters doing that, we'll look at a little bit of that uh, in a few minutes. But the point is, uh, what he's going to show here in just one verse is that man is incapable of finding God or, and therefore finding true wisdom apart from, or just through natural revelation. But you're not going to get it. We're not going to get there. You, you can look at the at this beautiful uh, setting sun or sunrise and say, boy, that says something about the Creator. But you will not know God through the, through the sunrise. You will only know Him through His revealed uh, Word of God. So, um, so this verse, I think, is Augur's way of showing his insignificance as a uh, as a man. So he starts with with uh, uh, verse four a, who has ascended to heaven and come down. So this just shows that access to the divine realm is impossible by man. But remember, somebody built a tower to do that. Remember the tower of of Babel, they said, we're, you know, we, we can do this. And so they built this tower, and it, and it, it was apparently pretty tall, but a ziggurat, I think they call it, pretty tall building. And remember the irony was, but God still had to look down and say, what's that little thing down there? You know, because they weren't getting anywhere with, uh, with their efforts to, uh, to reach heaven. Uh, it, is an, it is an interesting thought here, isn't it? that there's a great chasm between God and man. And here he, he, the writer puts it in a, in a spatial dimension, you know, the distance of, of how far above, uh, in the created realm, how far above heaven is uh, from earth and how far above God is than, uh, than we as, as human beings. So there's a great distance. And his point is, we will not bridge that distance, that gulf, by ourselves going up, how will the how will the, the bridge, how will the distance be bridged? Rob, give, give us yeah, give us the gospel here. Yeah, yeah. The the perfect revelation of who God is and what uh, you know, and knowing how to have a relationship with Him. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. Right, and He had to come. Down, yeah. He had to come get us. We we can't pull ourselves up there. So, so that's kind of the beginning. And then, 
Um, he, he talks about the created realm um, in verses, uh, in parts 4b through d, uh, who's gathered the wind in his fist, who has wrapped up the waters in a garment, who has established all the ends of the earth. And so this is the, of course, the, the purpose of these questions is for the reader to say, it's not me, I didn't do this. And um, and that's what God did with Job. And you know, he just kept asking Job, well, where were you when I did this and that and when I made this animal? And and, uh, um, and finally Job came to that conclusion, well, it wasn't me, God. But the point is, I think that uh, God's sovereignty and control of the universe means that wisdom is not just an accumulation of knowledge. Uh, it is the power to manage and control, not only to create, but always, but also to manage and control. And that shows his, his sovereign wisdom. Now, let's look at Job 28, just for a couple of minutes. It's really interesting and so similar in the spirit of, of it. So maybe at Job 28, I have a little heading in my version of where is wisdom. So this is um, Job's question about how to find wisdom. And it's kind of divided into three parts. We can begin with uh, verses 12 through 19. So now he asks this question, where can wisdom be found? Um, and we won't read all that, but uh, nobody knows. Man says, I don't know where it is. The deep says, I don't know where it is. Uh, it can't be bought for silver or gold. Um, uh, verse 18, no mention shall be made of coral or crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. Topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued uh, in pure gold. And so the point is, we don't know where wisdom is, and if we did, we couldn't afford it anyway. It's too, it's too valuable. So then in verse uh, 20, we see that God knows where wisdom is. So verse 20, from where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It's hidden from the eyes of all living, of all humans, and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we've heard a rumor of it with our ears. Um, but verse 23, but God understands the way to it. And he knows its place. For he looks to the end of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. It, isn't that a, a good definition of wisdom? To have a, a broad perspective on the whole, on the whole picture. Um, so he sees everything under heaven. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of thunder. Then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. Almost the exact idea that Agur has in this verse 4 back in chapter 30. So, um, the Lord knows where wisdom is. And then look what he says in verse uh, 28. He has said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So we see this congruity of what wisdom is. Uh, two things here. One is, God must reveal it. If he doesn't reveal it to us, we're not going to reveal himself and therefore reveal wisdom. 
we're not going to know wisdom. And uh, it has that relational dimension to it. The fear of the Lord is the, uh, is the beginning of wisdom. Okay, well, let's go back to uh, Proverbs 30. Uh, I usually have questions in my notes to ask you, but I haven't. I want to ask you one question, but maybe you can answer some. Anybody have a thought? Or I have some questions in a few minutes, but any other thought about this idea of natural revelation being not enough? Or what do you think, Rob? Um, what's, what's striking to me uh, in all of this, you know, the, the, in, in Proverbs, the language of you know who has ascended, who has descended, and the idea of gathering the wind or the waters. These are, from a human perspective, impossibilities. It's anthropomorphic language. And it's very reminiscent to me of, of Isaiah as well, when uh, we talk about, or when God reminds Isaiah, reminds the readers that his transcendence is that my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Um, and the, you know, the idea of the difference between God's transcendence and his imminence or his nearness, because it seems like a lot of times that we put God in a box. We think we've got God figured out. We make God in our own image. Thinking again, we lower him essentially, thinking like, well, I, I have a pretty good handle on his nature, mm. on his power, on his, you know, all that he is. And it's ridiculous to think that way because, again, all these verses remind us is that, you know, you use the analogy of, um, uh, I can't remember the, uh, the, the idea of it's very, very small compared to something that's very, very big. It's almost like, um, if God doesn't condescend himself or stoop down to reveal himself to us and to communicate to us and, and to show us just a, a, a glimpse of his of how awesome he is, we wouldn't get it. You know, and so the idea that we mentioned is sovereignty, but also just the um, I use the word awesomeness, is that God is so big and so great and so far beyond us, it should literally blow our minds. I mean, it should cause us to be on our knees and, and to realize again that um, how great he is and to just just be merciful enough to, to say, this is who I am and you can know me, but at the same time, um, you can't know me. You know, and, there's just, and there's a tension there. And we have a tendency, to go, at least in my perspective, to get way too familiar with God and just basically think that he's just uh, that grandfather in the sky and... Uh, and we can just basically cozy up to him and have him all figured out. Mm -hmm. And God says, you don't have a clue no. of how awesome and how great I really am. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I, I like, I think A.W. Tozer said there's only two categories in the universe. There's God and not God. Well, there's the creator and there's the creation. But let's be sure we keep those things. We're not panentheists or pantheists. We're, we're uh, theists. Good, that's good, Bob. Come Is there, this should be a rhetorical question, I hope it is, is there any conflict between these last few comments you've made and what it says in Romans 1 about uh, God's attributes being seen in everything that he's made? So there's obviously a distinction between wisdom, it looks to me like there's some distinction between wisdom coming from the knowledge of God and the knowledge and awareness about himself. Is that right or not? Or is I think so. John's asking about Romans 1. And um, I thought about that too, that 
the natural revelation. I, I know when I was doing a lot of chaplain work with purely secular people and I was training chaplains, I said you can always use uh, natural revelation. Uh, I said what are other ways to describe natural common revelation or you can always use those and it won't get you in trouble you know because you're not bringing the gospel to people but uh, somebody reminded me of reading chapter one of Romans that well that's a nice thing to do but if you leave people there without the special revelation of the gospel then they only are condemned because that's what Romans says they are without excuse they've seen They've seen the attributes of God, and they still don't humble themselves before before the Lord. So, I don't think there's any contradiction there. I think John, you're right. There is a tension, and we need to glory and rejoice in the natural revelation and use it, you know, to build relationships with people. But if they don't, if that's all they have, um, without the special revelation of God's word and the gospel and the Spirit, uh, they've only found themselves uh, without excuse. Okay, well, look at this last uh, phrase in uh, Proverbs uh, 4, verse, uh, in the last part of it. What is his name? And what is his son's name? Uh, surely you know that that's, uh, that's a, that, uh, God asked Job that very question. Surely you know these things, don't you, Job? And the point is to get Job to say, I don't have a clue you know, what that is. <clears throat> but, <clears throat> I don't know if that's the same motive that's here, but uh, the point is, he is, uh, Augurus is trying to help them to see that only God, that there is this great divide and natural revelation is not enough. This is, this is our God they were speaking about. And then when he says, who is his son? Who do you think he's referring to? But don't say Jesus, because we don't know that yet, okay? I mean, we know it, but he didn't know that, so. I didn't mean to rebuke you. You can say Jesus if you want to. That's always a good answer. But so, who is his son? Who do you think he's speaking of? He's speaking of of, of who um, who his progeny are, uh, such as you know, like Adam is described as the son of God. Uh, what human? What human? Or what? Yeah, I don't know, but I'm just thinking of listening to that and saying, okay, he's his son. Saying, well, what human can know him? Okay. You know, who, who can be his child? Um, so it's asking, who, 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 who can know him? Okay, so that is, this is the question, who can become God's son? Uh, the scholars that I read said he's referring to Israel. Israel was his firstborn son. That's what God. That's what Moses said to uh, Pharaoh: "Let my son go. He's my firstborn." Um, and the point is, because he's he's getting ready to now talk about the revealed will of God, and perhaps he's saying, um, "This is our this is our God, our Creator, and we can know Him only through the the." Uh, the resource that God has made, and that was that would be the nation of Israel. They're the only ones that have the that have the special revelation of God uh, in His Word. So, of course, we know looking back that ultimately 
uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is the final revelation of God. He is the divine Son. Hebrews, Hebrews 1 is so beautiful. It says, it says uh, in times past, God spoke to our fathers in many ways and in many times. But now in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, to whom He created the world and to, uh, who upholds the universe by the word of His power. So Jesus is that, that final word. Okay, let's look at the spend the rest of our time, I think, for these next uh, two verses. They are really, really beautiful, verses uh, 5 and 6. So now we've come to the to uh, the special revelation of God, the written Word of God. It wasn't always written at first. You know, the prophets spoke and, and they wrote it down. Um, every Word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Uh, apparently, every word of God proves true. That word proves is um, is the imagery of the refiner's fire. Uh, precious metal is refined and the dross comes to the top and it's skimmed off and the metal becomes pure and and, um, and more true, more, more authentic. Uh, of course, God's word doesn't need to be purified, but it's the imagery there that uh, and so after the after the after the metal has been has been purified, then it becomes trustworthy. It'll do what you you know what you want it to do. If it's still got alloy and and, and uh, things that shouldn't be in it, it, it won't be as strong. But the point here is that every word of God proves true, and I think the the point is that it's it's pure, and so when you put it to the test. It proves that it's true. It proves uh, what it is. It's interesting. I think this is other another uh, Hebrew parallelism. So I'll just I'll just let you read that and, and apply the parallelism. The phrase, the first phrase of verse five says one thing. The next phrase of verse five says the same, presents the same truth. But look and see what you can gain from from putting those two statements together and seeing how they are parallel to each other. Okay, so following Hebrew parallelism, one explains the other, they say the same thing. What is the truth we gain here? Well, I've looked at it a lot longer than y'all have. I know you, some of you know the answer, but to look, every word of God proves true. And in the same way, if um, He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. So the way that we know that the word of God is proven true is when we take refuge in Him. And notice that God identifies Himself with His word. Taking refuge in His Word is the same as taking refuge in Him. And um, so that's how we prove that God's Word is trustworthy, is that we take refuge in Him. Refuge from what? What do we need refuge from? Well, lots of stuff. 
Yeah. 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 Okay, slander of others. So, for, for sure, one of the things, and we see this in the Psalms and David and other places, that he runs to, to God, his high tower, his, you know, his refuge, uh, oftentimes to find safety from external uh, enemies that are outside of him. But also, the Word of God proves true to give us refuge from our enemies within. And we're not going to get to it to his prayer in verses 7 through 9, but I think that's what we see, what we see there. So the Word of God is completely sufficient for whatever refuge we need. And he says that um, in verse 6. Do not add to his words. Did I turn that off? Okay. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So this verse is a beautiful verse, a beautiful truth that says to us, um, God's word is completely sufficient in and of itself. You don't need to add anything to it to make it uh, better. Um, so this is, a, this is a beautiful passage that speaks to us about um, how God's word is all that we need. We don't need anything else. His word is sufficient. And we've been growing in this area as we've tried to grow in our ability uh, as biblical counselors and caring for one another uh, just to see the full sufficiency of God's word in meeting our needs um, to give us wisdom uh, from his word. Um, So how do we add? How do we add to God's word in a way that we shouldn't? Bob? Okay. How do you add to God's word in a way that you shouldn't, Bob? Well, you have the the, the, the cults, of course, that add, you know, extra books. Uh, you have that's that's a go-to right there. Um, with tradition. That's again just your particular interpretation of things that um, you say, just like the Judaizers did, with the idea that in order to be saved, you have to be circumcised and people want Moses. Um, I think you can add to it where even interpreting the Word of God, you can be very, very, very careful. Is that if you're counseling or if you're instructing or if you're doing Bible studies or any way that, uh, again, that's why I think the admission of James about let not many of you be teachers is because of a huge responsibility and sharing the Word of God with someone. And is this your, is this something that you're adding on to it that's not quoting the text and you're binding someone's conscience to? Or again, is this something that God has said, this is His Word, and this is reliable and trustworthy and true, and this is the core beliefs, these are the, the essentials of salvation. And so I think that again, denominations, and just even in say church history, there's always been that temptation to add just a little bit. Um, it, that little bit becomes a lot. And so I think you'd be very, very careful that you don't add or subtract. Because mm -hmm. when we talk about the cults again, 
you add, you multiply, you divide. You know, there's again, there's a lot of there's things that we do with God's word to manipulate it or change it, and that, that those commandments are in uh, that warning is in Genesis. It's also in uh, Revelation, and here too. In fact, in Revelation, is that if you add or subtract, you're cursed by God. There's a curse attached to it. So it's pretty. I think that we we get very we get, very, we get careless a lot of times with um, handling the word of God, and it's a very dangerous thing to do. Galatians is also good. Galatians about the Judaizers, and yeah, that's good. Well, good, Rob. I don't know what I can add to it, but I'm going to add a couple of things. Um, not, no, I don't really have. That's that was a very comprehensive answer. Right? And sometimes, as I think Rob, you mentioned, we can add to God's word by the way we interpret it or how we apply it. Well, I know the Bible says I should submit to authority, but you don't know my boss, so truly there's an exception here. A teenager could say that about their, their parents or whatever it may be. Um, Jesus said, I didn't look up the passage, Jesus said uh, the Word of God cannot be loosened. You can't loosen it. That's what the Pharisees did. They loosened it. And I, I do know where he says this in the in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, chapter 5, uh, he says, uh, he who loosens the Word of God uh, will be known as uh, least in the kingdom of heaven. So he's really serious about, Jesus is really, he's talking about the Old Testament, of course, but now all of the Word of God. Very serious about letting the Word of God stand for, for where it is. And as you know, we've seen this in the lives of individuals and the churches and the denominations that when we jettison the pure authority and the weight of God's word, everything else is open to debate about human sexuality or marriage or whatever or, or even the gospel. So we want to be careful uh, that we let the word of God stand and way over us with authority. And he speaks very, very clearly about that at the end of verse 6. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you. So he takes this personally about his word. And you'd be found a liar. Well, I, don't, I, I looked at five or six different commentators and none of them dealt with that. So I don't know what it means. but Except, I think maybe Matthew Henry had something good to say about that. He always does. But something about that if you add to God's word, and use it in teaching others because he is this does have kind of a uh, um, you know if it is to his sons then these are men that are in the court and they're going to be leading others and if you do add to God's word and you teach others that way I will show that you've that you're not being honest and true about about my word well wow, we're uh, really late here well I hope you'll read his prayer it's really beautiful it is a uh, in his prayer. Um, so, uh, Russ, we look forward to you teaching us uh, the next uh, two months. Okay, thank you, everybody. Yeah.